I don't know if uh, when you watch movies you like to do this, but our family will often go to the special features and go through them. We, we like to see, you know, how did they make this? How did they do that scene? I'll have a behind the scenes here, an interview with the actor. Sometimes what they'll do is they'll show the original storyboarding for the film. They'll, a shot of the wall and there's all these images uh, with these hand sketch drawings and we enjoy that and seeing how, how they kind of crafted the story. Storyboarding is an important art in storytelling because what you're trying to do is you're trying to connect each individual scene or keyframe to the overarching theme. There's a meta-narrative going on for this story you want to convey and you're wanting to, you're wanting to in each kind of frame, move, move the viewer there, uh, take us on that journey, convey the mood, the appropriate mood. And so when we come to Romans chapter 5, which is our text for today, the second half of uh, this chapter, verses 12 to 21, the Apostle Paul does some storyboarding. And he puts some really striking images in this storyboard. You know, uh, throughout the book of Romans, where justification by uh, grace and faith is a, is a massive theme, of all the times when Paul's talking about grace and the gift of God, a, th a third of all those mentions are in chapter 5. So it's like, as he's storyboarding the second half of chapter 5 of these images we're about to look at, he, he, he makes certain that the readers know just how much God's grace and what this gift is is just critical to his storyboard. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a pattern of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through the trespass of one man, how much more did the grace of God and the gift that came by that grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abound for many? And the gift of God is not like the result of that one man's sin. The, result, uh, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Therefore, just as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, one act of righteousness leads to the justification and life for all men. Just as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, by the one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. There's an Anglican theologian named John Stott. And he looks at this portion of scripture that we just read. And he describes it as extremely condensed and extremely crafted. Because as the Apostle Paul is doing his storyboarding here, he carefully illustrates that Christ restores what Adam lost. And so various theologians refer to this passage in Romans 5 as the tale of two Adams. And so this is how we're going to explore the, the, uh, the text today in relation to these two Adams. Because that's, 
the picture that Paul is painting. Jesus is the second Adam. So as we unpack the text, we'll look at a few things. The first thing is the similarities between the two Adams. The second thing is the differences between the two Adams. And then the final thing is how do we live in relation to the two Adams? So first, let's look at the similarities between these two Adams. The first Adam related to God in a way that had widespread, widespread impact affecting all of humanity. Right? Jesus Christ, the second Adam, he related to God in a way that had widespread effect of all humanity. And as moderns, this is pretty offensive because we like to think of ourselves as rising and falling on our own autonomous individual choices. We don't like the idea that our destiny has ultimately been determined not by the rise and the fall of our choices, but by the fall of Adam's choice. It's offensive. You've probably had, if you've grown up in church for a while, you've probably thought more than once as a child growing up, well, why am, why am I paying for what that guy did? Right? This is a common conversation and argument against how God could possibly be just in all of humanity having to pay for what Adam did. We don't like it and because uh, we like this idea of, of, of autonomy. But the scriptures always speak to humanity in terms of solidarity. They always speak to humanity as, this is how the Bible provokes us to think about it. We're in solidarity with Adam or we're in solidarity with Christ, meaning whatever Adam did as our federal representative is affecting all of us. Right? We've got a vote coming up this week and we're going to elect a federal representative. Now the difference here between the federal representative that we're going to be electing next week and, and Adam being a federal representative is none of us voted for Adam. So it's still offensive to us. Because even if we could concede what the scriptures say about everybody being in Adam and, and, and Adam being created in perfection, but then using his free will to commit divine treason, and then from that point, him and Eve and all of the, and, and all of the successive generations have been born into a state of not wanting God at all, but wanting to be their own gods. That's what Romans 1 through 5 is building that case. Even if you concede to all that, you're like, yeah, but I still didn't vote for the guy. This is what we really, really uh, grapple with. Well, federal representative. Federal comes from the Latin word feodus, and feodus means uh, federal. See how good that was? No, I'm just kidding. It, it It means there's a covenant connectedness. It means I'm rising and falling with this person. It's just what it, that, that's how it works. And, uh, you know, if, if a country, um, you know, if our country over the course of the next months after this election start making uh, legislative decisions or, 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 or international decisions or some sort of a, uh, a ethical decision that is, is contrary uh, to your ethics, you can say, hey, I didn't vote for them. Hashtag not my prime minister. You can say that. But because of the reality of what federal government means, you're living with the consequences. And so this is the case that Paul builds at the beginning. There is a similarity between Adam and Jesus, and it's whichever one we're united to, whichever one we're in, we're living with the consequences of their actions. Now, um, like I said, we've we've all probably uh, made that argument, like, well, I don't think this is fair. I think if I was in the garden, I would have made a better choice. I wouldn't have done what he did. Yes, he would have. Here's why. I'm not being trite about it. You see, God did not simply choose Adam to to represent us federally. God created Adam to represent us perfectly. So the idea that you would somehow do something different in the garden is basically saying, 
Number one, there's something wrong with God's wisdom in Genesis 3. Number two, there's something defective about God's handiwork in Genesis 3. And I'm here to challenge the idea, to, 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 to argue that no, there's nothing defective about God's handiwork in Adam, and there's nothing defective about God's wisdom. And so, in verse 14, Paul describes this very first Adam as the pattern of the one who would come. He's speaking about Jesus. This is a bold and unapologetic statement, right? That both Adam and Jesus are these representatives uh, for humanity, and whatever they do is transferred to those that they represent. So when you get to verses 16 through 19, it talks about how the first Adam brings condemnation leading to death, and the second Adam brings justification leading to life after death. So Paul's storyboard makes this bold statement, we're either in Adam or we're in Christ. And he's painting all this with a really black brush. He's making really striking contrasts, saying that we're all starting out in Adam by birth, but we can all be in Christ by grace. And so the inevitable disintegration into death that was set in motion by Adam, it will be reversed by the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, which leads us to the second thing. So the differences between these two Adams. When you look at verse 13, it talks about how there was death even before the law. And, and so this conversation about the law and of, um, uh, coming later, but there being death leading up to it, is a way of saying it's illustrating sin as a result of conscious human choice or contaminated human soul. When the law came, then you could sin via conscious human choice. I know what God's word says, and I don't care. Conscious human choice. But what Paul is saying is, but before the law came, and you weren't dealing with conscious human choice, you're dealing with contaminated human, human uh, nature as a result of, of sin. And so he's teaching us uh, that our responsibility increases with the law. Because our awareness increases. As we have God's word, our responsibility and our awareness increases. You think of children, and if you have a smaller child and an older child, and they're, getting, and they're fighting in the basement, you're going to deal with them both because they're both guilty of the infraction, but the older kid gets the speech. And what's the speech? You know better. If you're an older ch- child and you grew up in a home with younger siblings, that was the speech you got. Right? You're like, they're three. You're ten. You know better. And so there's always this increased guilt, or, uh, increased, uh, 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 guilt in, uh, that comes with awareness. And not increased guilt in the sense that the little one wasn't guilty, but they, have no, they don't have the awareness of the older one. You know, toddlers, for example, you know, they smack each other all the time. There, maybe there's a little toddler up in our uh, Redeemer Kids right now and smacking another toddler. I mean, little kids do this all the time. And we know it's wrong, and it is wrong, and it's not right. But there's, but there's something different about when you understand the law than when you don't. When they're a little toddler up there, they don't know what they're doing, even though they're, what they're doing is wrong. Now, it would be a lot different if there were two moms after the service out in the hallway, you know, <laughs> a smackdown happening, duking it out, upset. And they're like, Mom, hey, well, Timmy, where is your mom? She's, she's hitting your mom. <laughs> Can you smell what my mom is cooking? What? It's happening. And so... There's just greater guilt. That's how it works. And so when you think of the years that your parents spent with you and the years that we, if, if you are a parent with your children, teaching them to shift their disposition from living life like it's me first. And uh, you think about that. You see, the reason we have to spend all this time and energy you know, training ourselves and others not to just live at this disposition of me first is not because we're simply like Adam 
But Paul's point is we were in Adam. That's why we come out of the womb, you know, what? Not my little angel. Yes, you're a little battle angel. Yeah, we, we all need uh, this grace because we're not simply like Adam, we're in Adam. Verse 14, Paul says, you know, nevertheless, death reigned. Disease and death, they reign. Disease and death reign over cruel people and nice people. Young people, old people. Wise people, foolish people. Death does not discriminate. And so Paul's making a case, actually, by bringing this up, not to depress the Roman church, but he's making a case to say, you know, actually this federal representation is actually a good thing because if condemnation and death came to us because of the first Adam, then justification and life will come to us in the second. And so he's talking about this, this gift of grace. And you need to know that grace is not a religious word that Paul invented for the church. Grace was something that was used in the culture all the time. The Greek word is charis, and charis meant, what it meant was you would give a gift. Here's the difference, though. Here's the way grace was used in the Greco-Roman world. When you would give somebody grace, it meant you gave someone a gift who you felt was worthy of the gift, and quite often you would give the gift publicly so that you would be thanked, and there would be a uh, sort of a connection of Uh, there would be a kind of very uh, public declaration of kind of relational connectedness and status. So you see, the way that the culture understood grace was you give a gift to the person who's worthy of it because it's going to benefit you in some way. And now Paul starts using that word grace, but he's applying the gift to people who don't deserve it at all, the sinners. Do you see how scandalous this is? You know, there's this, uh, this show on Netflix called Neo Yokio. And uh, our family's watching it's like this animated um, kind of futuristic New York kind of thing where the animators held up this kind of mirror to certain things about culture. And it was, kind of, it was super satirical. And, and um, in one of the episodes, it's a Christmas special. And all of these super rich, the, the super rich, uh, wealthy bachelors of, of Neo Yokio, New York, you know, in the future, they, uh, they have this Christmas party and it's televised. And, they, and it's like the secret Santa for the who's who. And they're all giving each other these ridiculous gifts. And, it's, and, and all of the commoners are watching them give each other gifts. And they're all like, ooh. And they're all just swooning over all of this. It's just like this nauseating levels of, of opulence. And, and the whole thing is just, <laughs> and they're doing it on purpose because they're wanting, to, they're wanting uh, you know, they're wanting us to kind of hold up this mirror to see how sometimes we can just kind of get swept up into this stuff. That's that's in, in some ways what the Greco-Roman understanding of giving gifts was. That's how you did it. That's why you did it. And then Paul comes along and talks about this gift of grace, of what Christ is giving to people who absolutely do not deserve it. When you get to verse 15, Paul unpacks the motivations a little bit for why these two Adams did what they did. The first Adam was motivated to exalt himself, and the second Adam was motivated to empty himself. So the driving force in Jesus' life, because we talk a lot about Christ's perfect obedience and why that's so important, his perfect act of obedience. But the, the driving force between his obedience towards God was undeserved compassion towards us. See, the first Adam chose what was self-serving. And the second Adam chose what was self-emptying. 
To live a life that is self-serving is contrary to God's law. To live a life that is self-emptying is the fulfillment of God's law. That's how Jesus summarized the law in Matthew 22, right? He said, hey, if you love God with everything that you got and you love your neighbor with everything you got, you can hang all the law of the prophets on that because you fulfilled the law. It is a law of love. It is a law of living a life of self-emptying. Of course, you and I don't do that. We have moments when we do, but we are weaving in and out of that all the time, church, which is why we come here and we celebrate God's grace, that Jesus Christ lived that perfectly self-emptying life for us. So when you get to verses 16 and 17, Paul showcases this powerful reversal, right? The scandalous exchange at the heart of the gospel that Christ's deeds undo the effect of Adam's, right? And so notice that there's a, there's a contrast in those verses, um, that, that, that Paul puts in the storyboard. He says, death reigns, and it's almost like your ear wants to hear life reigns, because that's parallel, right? Parallelism. You're expecting to hear death reigns, life reigns. But he says, death reigns, we reign in life. What does that mean? Who is he speaking to? Who, who's reigning in life? See, this promise, we've got to just stop dead in our tracks and go, what are the implications of this? Because it's not simply a future promise, though it is. It's a, it's a right here, right now promise. Reigning in life? What could that mean? What does that mean? Well, the context is Rome. It is uh, 58 AD. So let's talk about what reigning in life isn't. <laughs> it's not having everything go well all the time. And just rising to the top and it's just success after success. And that person must be a Christian because they are the healthiest, wealthiest person I know. They must be a Christian. All Christians are the healthiest, wealthiest people we know. That is not reigning in life. Paul would not write that to the church in Rome in 58 AD when Nero was on the rise, burning Christians on the lawn like their lawn ornaments, riding around in his chariot like a crazy person. When you read Roman antiquity, Nero was such a character, there were lots of Romans that were like, uh, I'm not that kind of Roman. Like, that's what he was like. It's not like all of Rome was like, yay, Nero, we love that this guy's burning. This guy was a crazy person. And he was on the rise, and this church is, 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 is having to do life underneath uh, this context. So what is this reigning in life? It's, it's, it is resilience as God's children. It is a resilience of, of being able to handle stress and trial and circumstance and no matter what is happening. Paul is saying to the Christians in Rome, you can reign in life because Christ is your king and united to him, you are not a slave to your sin. You are not a slave to your circumstance. There is nothing going on in your life that can hold you hostage. Because of Jesus, there is a peace and a strength that is available to you in your trials, that will carry you through all of your trials, reigning in life. Your joy. What does it mean to reign in life? United to Christ, we reign in life, church. Our joy is not tethered to needing everything to work out. Do you know how many people there are and their joy is tethered to the vote that's coming next week? Their peace is tethered to that? People are, they are just getting ready to hit the panic button right now. It's like this election can go one of two ways for a lot of people. Either tremendous exhilaration, yay, my horse won the race, or, oh, certain apocalyptic destruction in Canada. 
Do you know how many people are living in that state? And I'm not, I'm not being apolitical, by the way. Like, I'm not like, who cares about politics? Politics matter. I hate to drag Plato into this. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. But, <laughs> but, but I, I am very interested in politics, okay? But, the, but my point is, our joy is not tethered to these things. They matter, and we have to engage in them. We have to be thoughtful about them and do homework, right? We have to do these things. It's, it's, it's very difficult in Canada to, to, uh, to do this because in, within each uh, political party, you'll find certain things that you can really get behind, say that is consistent with my Christian ethic, but then there's this thing they're also going to do over here, and that is not. And that is true across the board. And anybody who tells you there's a political team Jesus and, and any self-respecting Christian should vote for that party simply has not read enough. It's just simply not that simple. I wish it were that simple. It simply is not. And so... To reign in life for us, church, is to not have our hearts and our minds constantly in this insane emotional roller coaster based on what is happening in the world around us, whether it's 58 AD in Rome or it's 2019 in Canada. To have our peace tethered to Jesus Christ, the one who is undoing the disintegrating work of the first Adam, the one who is bringing his resurrection life into our hearts and into our lives, giving us resilience. Think of how you're raising your children. Maybe you're here for the single folks who you don't have uh, children, but think of children who are in your life, though. Families, friends, nieces, nephews. Like, think of the children in your life. And think about how much when they um, come to you and they're crying about something and they're going through a hard thing at school and somebody picked on them at recess or something. You know, they're young children and the world is like, oh, it's terrible. And you're like... You're trying to help build resilience in them. And so you're trying to help the, the, the children uh, be able to relate to difficult people and situations and circumstances or teachers you don't get along with. You're trying to build a resilience in them so that the, this child doesn't grow up in this insane bubble where the only way for them to have peace and some be functional and emotionally sort of you know, able to function is to have no conflict in their life. But that's just not the world that we live in. So you're trying to build resilience in your children as a parent. What has God the Father done for you so you can rule and reign in life now? He has given Jesus Christ to you. The Holy Spirit indwells you to give you resilience for those things that you have to deal with this week coming that are very important, some very stressful, some sorrowful, some frustrating. He has given you his Spirit so that you can reign in life because you are united to Christ your Savior. And I want you to notice that two times, you know, Paul, in this passage we read, Paul uses the phrase, how much more, right? How much more? You know, sin abounds, how much more does grace abound? And what, what, what that phrase, how much more, teaches us is that Christ's grace isn't just this sort of tit-for-tat answering of Adam's sin. Oh, Adam did that, Jesus is going to do this. There, see? It's even. It's not even. Nothing about this is even. Christ's grace entirely overwhelms. What's being emphasized here is that God is not only a God of justice, but that he's a God of grace. Because justice gives what's deserved with equivalence, whereas grace gives what's undeserved in abundance. Right? What you deserve, if, it was, if God was merely a God of justice, he would forgive your sin and go, okay, you guys are free to go. But that's not what he did. He forgave your sin, and now with this superabundance of this, uh, of this grace that is in your life, He's in, he has now, by the Spirit who indwells you and by his presence who is with you, enabling you to reign in life, and a life that is not good. My job is not to come here and tell you, you know, 
uh, my job is not to come here and stand up here and, and tell you, you know, nice things so that you uh, kind of go, okay, that, 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 was, that was great, and uh, just tell me everything's going to be okay, Paul. Just tell me, just find a way to take that text and give me silver lining theology. I need every sermon to sound a little bit like whatever I'm dealing with now. Don't worry, because this week God will take it away. Uh, wow, no. The scriptures don't read like that at all. They read like you can reign in life, even though you're living in Rome in 58 AD. There is a resilience of the Spirit that God provides. You know, when you look at verse 19, there's something there that's worth reflecting on. Again, about the scandalous gift of grace. It says we were made righteous, but how, how did that happen? Think about this. Again, with the two Adams. The first Adam was told, if he obeyed, he'd enjoy God's blessing and his presence and life. And the second Adam, Jesus, knew that if he obeyed, he would lose God's blessing and lose God's presence and lose his life. And he said, yes, I'll do it because I love them. John, Gre- uh, John Gresham Macon is the founder of Westminster Theological Seminary, and he made a comment on this passage that I'm reading for you, and here's what he said. Before Adam fell, he was righteous, but he lived with the possibility by making a sinful choice of becoming unrighteous. Those who are in Christ are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous through sinful choices because Christ stood in perfect righteousness in your place. This is the good news of the gospel. He didn't just say, I'm going to give you another, I'm going to give you a second chance. That wouldn't have helped you. He said, I'm going to give you a second Adam. Here's the third thing. How do we live in relation to these two Adams? How do we live in relation to all this, of everything that I'm saying? I think a good place to start is to ask ourselves, since Paul was drawing this storyboard with a black Sharpie to just create such a massive contrast between life and death, where is, where is your life going? A good place to ask is, where, where is this all headed? Let's just back out and think about this. How do we relate to this? You know, I was on, on a plane from Halifax coming from presbytery meeting yesterday on my way here. And I looked, and the person who was a couple rows up had their laptop open, and they were doing, uh, they were doing something for a course in philosophy because it had Epicurus on the, on the monitor. Now, Epicurus had a philosophy that, hey, listen, uh, before you were born, you didn't exist. And after you die, you don't exist. So don't fear death. And people go, oh, phew, I love it. That's a great philosophy. I'm Epicurean. Okay, wait a second, though. So if you came from nothing for no reason, and then after you die, it all comes to nothing for no reason, But here and now, you're trying to tell yourself, your children, and everybody you love that there's all these things that are really super important. I think you're living in a radical disconnect. Where is your life going? What what the two Adams provoke us to consider here is that, you know, if there's no God, you know, origins are meaningless and death is meaningless and the idea that everything else is meaningful in between is a bit of a disconnect because really... What you're calling joy is just a distraction from reality. Right? If, it, if in the end there's nothing, then the only way for you to be happy is to not think about that. Don't think about it. Don't look at your children and think about it. Don't look at your friends and think about it. Don't think about it. But you want to know the good news of the Christian faith is we can think very deeply about it. And it only increases our joy. 
It doesn't dissipate our joy, it increases our joy. You see, because in Christ, we don't have to not think about the implications of our day and here and now reality. We can think, we can stare right into the face of our reality. Which again, if I was to just bring this home for the, 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 the modern day parable of the election that is this week, if this life is all there is, you've got a very short window on enjoyment. And so you do need your horse to win the race. So that they do legislate all of the things that particularly like super serve you and your certain, you know, wherever you happen to be in the economic uh, uh, you know, tax bracket. Where, like you kind of need it all to work out, don't you? Or you're going to, Tuesday, Wednesday, you're going to be losing your mind. Wednesday, Wednesday, okay, we got to, woo, make it through this week. My horse didn't win the race. Breathe, church. Our king is on the throne. Our throne is well occupied. We're not tethered to the first Adam. By grace and faith, we're united to the second. And so that changes profoundly how we relate day to day. In verse 21, we find that the, in the cross, we find that the story of the end of your life is not death in the first Adam, but it's life in the second. It's not ending in darkness, but light. It's not ending in misery, but glory. Your life is not on a trajectory of slow disintegration into physical weakness and eventual nothingness. Your life is headed towards a physical resurrection and a material restoration. What your life is heading towards, because Christ raised from the dead, is an eternal life of joy, peace that is endless, fulfillment that knows no horizon with God and with the people of God. God's plan is not to do away with this material world. God's plan is to, by sheer grace, restore this material world and then raise you from death to enjoy it. And the Christian life is a journey in learning to live in congruence with that reality, that liberating freedom that enables us to live very differently day to day. Because when we were in Adam, our lives were driven by whatever our restless souls happened to want. But in Jesus Christ, his spirit gives rest to our restless souls and he gives us new appetites so that increasingly we want what God wants. When we were in Adam, we were the authors of our own truth. But in Jesus Christ, he renews us to see that the author of life is the one who authors our truth. When we were in Adam, we were driven to elevate our lives and our comfort, even at the expense of others. But now we are in Christ, and his spirit renews us to learn to selflessly give of ourselves, even at the expense of ourselves, for the benefit of others. When we were in Adam, our lives were being deformed by putting something else at the center and then orbiting around it like it was a God. And in Christ, his spirit awakens us, so we are being reformed by the wonder and the worship of God. So you can believe the facts of the gospel but you, in, in your head, but you can experience gospel amnesia in your soul. You've got things waiting for you on Monday, important things, difficult things, sorrowful things. Don't relate to those things with a sense of gospel amnesia, where you remember the facts of the gospel in your head, but you're living with a restlessness in your soul. Promise you, after this, after this election, your Twitter feed, beep, beep. wow, it's going to happen. It happens. It happens every four years. But not for the church. It shouldn't. 
we shouldn't have gospel amnesia. And I'm not talking about relating to the world and with, with casual indifference. I'm talking with a love and a grace, a self-emptying posture for those in this room to care and love, concern, be a blessing in the city. We've got things to deal with on Monday. Important things, difficult things, maybe sorrowful things. But you're not a slave to circumstance. You're not a slave to your sin and you're not a slave to circumstance. You're not in Adam. You don't, you're, not, you're not damned to having this fragile joy that's tethered to everything working out. You're in Christ. You're in the hands of the one who is holding the world together with the word of his power, who transcends your circumstance. And so if you're going to dwell on anything this afternoon, if you're going to dwell on anything this week, let it be him. If you're going to dwell on anything for so long that you magnify it so that it's massive in your mind, let it be him. If you're going to meditate on something until it becomes so real that it consumes your heart, then let it be him. Because the storyboard in Romans 5 conveys that the disintegration and death that was introduced by the first Adam has been radically reversed by those who trust in the resurrection of the second, Christ alone. Let's pray.